My life is really um, complex. There are things about me that you wouldn't understand. Now playing's Batman Movie Retrospective Series. Gentlemen, let's broaden our minds. Part of the Now Playing DC Comics Movie Series. Ah, uh, gives a fella a good feeling to know they're up there doing their job. With our all-star hosts, Jacob the Dark Knight. There's nothing to fear, but fear itself. Stuart, the Boy Reviewer. You look like a man who takes himself too seriously. In my opinion, you need to lighten up. And the clown prince of podcasting, Arnie. So when did the nut take over the nut house? Each week at NowPlayingPodcast.com, we'll be watching another Batman film, ending with a weekend of release review of Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight Rises. Now, the real game begins. What are you protecting me from? Have you ever danced with a spoiler in the pale moonlight? This podcast will contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. What do you suppose something like this does to a kid? Listener discretion is advised. Enough monkey business. We've got work to do. (sighs) Monkey work. Here we go. Today, we're discussing Batman Begins, starring Christian Bale, Michael Caine, Liam Neeson, Katie Holmes, Gary Oldman, <laughs> Cillian Murphy, and Morgan Freeman, directed by Christopher Nolan. I'm Arnie, co-host of Now Playing. You started out with Bale, and you kind of ended Arnold, and at some point there was a lisp. I don't know what that was. It was fantastic. <laughs> hey, at some point, Christian has a lisp, so I went with it. <laughs> That's hard to do. I get laryngitis just listening to him. It's Stuart in L.A. This is Jacob. I've made myself more than just a man. I'm something else entirely. A podcasting host. Something else indeed. And we are back in Bats. With Batman Begins after a foray into Spider-Man. And I love how our audience kind of bifurcated during this time. The Marvel folk were like, yes, we're back to Marvel. And the DC folk were like, when's Batman return? (laughs) We already did that one. (laughs) Not going back to it. But it took a while for Batman to return. He was on ice for quite some time. I have no idea why. (laughs) And... During all of the previous movies, every time there was a reboot or even between sequels, the thing that kept being said by both Burton and Schumacher is, we want to go do Batman year one, year one, year one. Well, finally, it was a different director and a long time later, but we get Batman's origin story brought to us by director Christopher Nolan 
a man who I absolutely loved. You you did that in past tense. Loved? Well, I loved him not when this movie came out, but when Memento came out. I actually saw that in theaters. You know, it was kind of an independent film, one not a lot of people saw in theaters. It found a following on home video. But when I saw Memento, I thought I was looking at the next Aronofsky, the next Tarantino, the next Brian Singer. I loved Memento so much. But then he came out with Insomnia, and I just couldn't get into it. You know, it's funny you mentioned Aronofsky, Arnie. Because he was at one point the director for this Batman reboot, which was going to be called Batman Year One. Him and Frank Miller, who wrote Batman Year One, you could go back and listen to Arnie and I review that graphic novel on Books and Nachos. They had started a script. You could read the early treatments on the internet. It is awful. It boggles the mind that Bruce Wayne loses his parents and moves in with auto mechanics Big Al and Little Al and (laughs) is a brooding psychotic. But, you know, it's Frank Miller. I was excited, though, because I'm a huge fan of Aronofsky ever since Pi and Requiem for a Dream. I was sad to hear that he was off the project. But Nolan, like you, I knew him from Memento. Love that movie. Insomnia. I liked it. To be fair about Insomnia, it is a remake, and I do stand that it is a better movie than the original. Maybe not his finest work, but like you, Arnie, Memento really amazed me, and I saw everything that he's done, usually multiple times, in theaters. Definitely a director that I won't miss any of his efforts, and he is the reason I came back to Batman. I'm already on the record of not really caring about how they wasted away the opportunity to do gothic Batman. I really kind of walked away from it after the first one and then just kept getting dragged back in. But I didn't want to go to see Batman Begins when it was an Aronofsky movie with Ben Affleck being rumored to be playing Bruce Wayne. That had no appeal to me, but Aronofsky went and did something else. Ben Affleck did Daredevil, kind of ended that. And Christopher Nolan's Howard Hughes' project fell by the wayside because Scorsese was going to do a competing project. But as it turns out, we get Christopher Nolan with what I'm going to just go ahead and say, up to this point, the greatest Batman movie yet. It totally took me by the throat when I saw this in theaters back in 2005. I was blown away. It was one of the few films I saw in 2005. And it really just knocked me over and I was a huge fan and couldn't wait to see more. I also have seen every Christopher Nolan film, which kind of surprises me because, again, I was a big fan with Memento. But when Batman Begins came out, I have to say I kind of thought, oh, Batman. And again, Insomnia kind of turned me against Nolan. And we already talked about this a little bit with the first Spider-Man in 2002. What was 2005? It was not the year for Batman for me, nor King Kong, nor War of the Worlds, as donors damn well know. (laughs) Please, put down your pistols. (laughs) That was the year of Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith. All other movies paled in comparison. And in fact, Liam Neeson, a man who seems to work almost as much as Nicolas Cage these days, was supposed to have been a minor part in Episode Three. wasn't at the last minute, His absence is felt in that movie, and I kind of blame this movie for it. So, in addition to not caring about Batman and not having eyes for Mr. or Mrs. Smith, my eyes were only on Revenge of the Sith, I also had a ding against this movie for what it did to Revenge of the Sith. So, I did go see this in theaters, 
I will say right now, I walked away then unimpressed. But this is my first time watching it since that theatrical release. And in between, I've seen The Dark Knight probably a dozen times. So I was very anxious to come back to this film and revisit it, getting over my Liam Neeson bit and seeing what I really feel about this film and how The Dark Knight might change my perceptions of it from what I felt that first night in theaters. It feels weird because I'm the Batman fan and I didn't see this movie in theaters. Now, I got reasons why started a new job, just didn't have a lot of time, a lot of money. But I didn't see this till maybe a couple years after it came out, at least a year. And uh, I'm going to admit this right now. I remember hearing about the film and I got a little bit of the fanboy rage. I'm like, he's going to have like a big old tank in this and it's the Scarecrow. Who the hell wants to see this? him fight the Scarecrow? What a C-less Batman villain. Lame. And I think even though I hadn't seen Batman and Robin at the time, that still lingered in the air, right? It's like, that's what this still had to compete against. Uh, that was still our perception. That was the lingering taste in our mouth. And I'm like, uh, okay. I finally went, though, and it was just a blind buy. I just picked it up on DVD one day and watched it. And this is actually only my second time watching it since then. I've watched clips of it here and there when it's been played on TV. But this is only my second time really sitting down and going all the way from beginning to end again. So we're all on the same page then, because this is my second time watching it as well. Even though I loved it, I've just never returned to Batman Begins. And I look forward to doing it. So, well then, Arnie, why don't you get into the plot? I'm going to be very high level, if you don't mind. (laughs) I did a first draft of this. It got so detailed. We're going to talk through it. So we will give the very, very Cliff Notes version. The Cliff Notes that would not get you a good essay in school version. As a young child, Bruce Wayne, playing with friend Rachel Dawes, falls into a hole on the grounds of Wayne Manor and is assaulted by frightened bats. This gives young Bruce a fear of bats, and when his parents take him to an opera where there are caped dancers on stage that remind him of bats, Bruce gets afraid and asks to leave. But outside the theater, Bruce's parents are mugged and killed, leading Bruce on a lifelong quest for revenge against all who do evil unto others. As an adult, Bruce traveled the world, living like a criminal and ending up in prison where he honed his fighting skills until he caught the eye of Ra's al Ghul head of the League of Shadows, a secret society of ninjas who also serve to fight evil. Through his emissary, Dakar, Ra's al Ghul invites Bruce to join their league and puts him through great trials as well as teaching him the skills of a ninja, how to fight, how to be invisible, how to use parlor tricks to intimidate. But for his final test, Ra's al Ghul asks Bruce to kill a murderer, and that's the one thing Bruce won't do. He believes criminals should be tried and jailed, but he will not execute them. He revolts, fighting Ra's men, killing Ra's al Ghul, and burning down his house, narrowly saving the life of his friend Ducard, who fell unconscious before returning to crime-ridden Gotham City. There, Bruce takes his training to the streets, fighting the criminals by night as Batman, using tech developed by Lucius Fox at his company Wayne Enterprises. Bruce is outfitted with a suit, a bridge-jumping Batmobile, and a high-tech arsenal of weapons. He starts to take down organized crime, specifically Crime Lord Falcone, working with Sergeant Jim Gordon, one of the few honest cops in Gotham. But Falcone is bringing in shipments of drugs for Arkham head psychiatrist Dr. Jonathan Crane, who uses them to create a fear gas that causes psychosis in those who take it. Crane wears a burlap mask and calls himself the Scarecrow as he tortures his patients, and he has been putting the drug in Gotham's water supply, thinking his boss planned to hold the city for ransom. But his boss is actually the man Bruce knew as Ducard, who really is Ra's al Ghul, the Asian man that died in front of Bruce was a decoy. 
Roz plans to destroy Gotham by using a microwave emitter to vaporize all the water in the city, releasing the fear gas, and the inhabitants of Gotham City will panic and destroy the town. Batman stops Roz, but Wayne Manor is burned down in the fighting, and Batman lives on to fight against crime, though not with girlfriend Rachel Dawes, who realizes that so long as Bruce is Batman, he can never be in a relationship. And like I say, we're going to get into that more, but when we did the Marvel movies, we often talked about the Marvel logo, and now I thought we should talk about the Marvel logo ripoff the DC uses. All right. We talked many times in all the podcasts about how they ripped off Superman and ripped off Superman 2. Well... Now the tide is turned the other way. I will always call somebody who's ripping off somebody else out on it. I don't blame DC or Warner Brothers. Again, they were coming off of Batman and Robin from years ago, 2007, eight years previous to this film. Marvel had leaps and bounds above them when it came to the screen. And so why not try to emulate some of that success? Sure. And they thought that they were going to have a larger stable of characters than they ended up. Uh, Superman returned the next year and then never came back again. Maybe we'll see him in 2013, but yes, they're trying to keep pace. For a while, DC was the tops in movies, and now Marvel is starting to eclipse them. To put it in the time frame perspective, this is happening a couple years after X2, Spider-Man 2 had come out the previous year and been a phenomenon. Comic book movies were highly valued, and Marvel had the highest grossing ones now. Now, is it me, or was there no title to this film? It's a bunch of flying bats that form a bigger bat, and then it just kicks off into the film. I do know they struggled to name this film. For the longest time, it was referred to as Batman Intimidation, and begins sort of happen at the last minute. The working title was Batman 5, believe it or not. Well, (laughs) nobody wanted to be reminded of the previous fourth installment. I don't think that was ever going to happen. Maybe when they created this, they didn't even know what they were calling it. Or maybe they just liked the ambiguity of it. And it's very clear here, they're going back and telling an origin story again. Stuart, you say again, I don't think we ever really got it the first time around. In Batman Forever, we got little glimpses of a one lone flying bat in a book at the Wayne's funeral. I don't think we ever got a proper origin story for this character. And the first 89 Batman, again, there's a few flashbacks, but they never really answered why is a billionaire obsessed with dressing like a bat and fighting crime? Even in the one with the psychologist, the hot, (laughs) hot psychologist, they never got into the psychology of Bruce Wayne. There was the cartoon. There was Mask of Phantasm. I feel like in this retrospective, I've seen it at least three times here. You know, I do feel like I'm oversaturated. And much like I said in the Amazing Spider-Man podcast, I really didn't want to go back. That wasn't appealing to me. The idea of seeing the parents murdered again, the idea of him learning how to be Batman again was not appealing in any form or fashion. It felt redundant. And what's funny is I remember when this movie came out, they didn't use the term reboot very publicly. Obviously now it was, but back then they were calling it a prequel. Keep in mind, biggest movie that year was Revenge of the Sith, a prequel. They were specifically calling this a prequel, a Batman origin story. And so I viewed this kind of like I've called Incredible Hulk and Punisher Warzone as a soft reboot, where when this movie ends, it could be continuing into the next one with Tim Burton's. Oh, how wrong we all were, though, if we assume that. <laughs> no, yes, that that is not the case. It may have been what they were telling the studio. Obviously, there was no shame to tying in with Tim Burton. Those movies were highly profitable, even Batman and Robin. 
was highly profitable. It just wasn't publicly adored. Yes, they would want to make money like those previous movies, but it is very clear very early on. You're right, it may come even in this credit sequence that Nolan has an entire different concept that he's putting forth here. And we're getting a Batman, a superhero movie we've never seen before. One of the first things that strikes me, no hero theme. There is no score to this that creates the sensation that you hear five notes and and you're thinking about Batman. Here, it's just ominous drones. It's just music that is kind of like Philip Glass. You know, it's just a wash in the background. It sets an unnerving tone. It really feels like we're seeing a horror movie, not a superhero movie. And again, that gets me excited. I had pre-ordered the score for this, Loving Batman Music. Can you imagine how disappointed I was listening to that raspy tat-a-tat-tat? Every so often, there's a good crescendo. Bum, bum. And I get excited. And then it's back to like 20 minutes of It sounds like insects hitting my window. Yeah, it's not going to hit your sweet spot if what you like are marches and triumphant sort of signature tunes that announce, hey, our hero is going to save the day. That's not what this is about. And as we get into it, we are told this story in a series of flashbacks. We see Bruce as an adult living overseas in prison, getting into fights. And when he sleeps, we see the dreams of what had happened before. It actually opens with him as a young boy falling into that well of bats. But that's a dreamed flashback. I realize they do this probably for economy. They want to get through this origin story, too. They know that the millions of people that have come to Batman already kind of know this stuff. So the structure of this is done more for getting us to exciting fights than it is for actually telling the story. I kind of feel like that's a mistake, though. I kind of wish that we had seen the whole thing chronologically rather than in this sort of inception-y dream and reality back and forth. I really love how this, I guess, first 45 minutes is structured. If you don't know who Bruce Wayne is, you walked off the street, never heard of Batman. I don't think you would know watching this that you're watching a superhero movie. This is a dude learning to become a ninja at the beginning of this film. There's nothing superhero-y about it. There's these dreams that are showing backstory, but... Man, it really gripped me. Yes, we all know his parents get shot, and it has been explored in the comics, the training he's gone through. Sam Hamm, who wrote Batman 89, he actually created the character Ducard in the comics, and he was this Parisian detective that trained Bruce how to be a detective. So there's always been this hinted at all this training that Batman went through. For me as a fan, it was neat actually seeing that on the screen. Not just his parents died and he decided to dress up as his bat, but now he's a globetrotter and he's going around the world learning all these fighting skills. I kind of like the international feel to it. Batman is a creature of Gotham City. I can't take that away, but it was refreshing to see him out here learning the skills internationally. I, not being a Batman comic fan, didn't know much about this. Honestly, in the audience waiting for this movie, I do think I saw this opening weekend, some people behind us were telling each other who Ra's al Ghul was and ruined it for me. I'm like, okay, he's immortal, he's a bad guy, he was involved in the creation of Batman. So when all this started, I had that knowledge very fresh in my mind. But I was enjoying seeing this. But yeah, economy certainly comes to mind. It feels like this entire first half hour is a montage. Yes, and one in which emotionally I'm not feeling the pain. The consequence of cutting it up in this way is that we don't feel the fear that young Bruce does when he falls down that well, when his parents get shot. By the time we're processing what we're looking at, 
they've moved back and forth. Atmospheric, certainly. Downbeat, absolutely. But I didn't feel emotionally connected to the character for quite a while. And I do think that if they had done it chronologically, if we had seen the whole evolution from Young Boy to getting him to this prison rather than starting in the prison, I probably would like this opening a lot more. I'm there with you, mostly. I agree. I do not connect to this character, and I blame the editing style of this opening for it. But it's an irreparable harm to me for this character. I never come around to him. Oh, come on. As soon as he's getting that fight in the prison and the guy said, you're in hell and I'm the devil. And he says, you're practice. Maybe I'm just a big action fan geek. Like, I'm like, okay, he's badass. I like this guy. Christian Bale. To me, he was always a very difficult actor to place. He was always the guy that would go to these incredible extremes in these little tiny movies that very few people saw and that were usually very bad. But he was always awesome in them. And I always felt like, man, somebody should get Bale a project that's worthy of his talent because he really wants to turn everything into some kind of De Niro-ish method actor, amazing physical transformation performance. I mean, if you had seen the movie he had done prior to Batman Begins, he is emaciated in The Machinist. He looks like a skeleton. I marveled at his talent, but at this point in 2005, I wasn't sold he was a movie star yet. I had no idea who he was, except I had heard he was this guy that got down to like 120 pounds for this little indie film and that he was amazing in it. I've never seen it even to this day. I don't recommend it. I knew him mostly for all the press he got in The Machinist before this, but I'd seen him in a bunch of stuff and could actually have placed him from Shaft, American Psycho, and even Reign of Fire. And I was like, this guy... I. I wasn't a big American Psycho fan. I couldn't get on board with everybody else with that. So coming in, I knew him, but I hadn't seen him in a damn thing I liked. Well, we're in the same place then, Arnie. That's exactly right. It's that, okay, I recognize he's talented, so why don't I care? And so it's an interesting place to come in. I know that Bale is going to give us his all, but is he right for Batman? Is this good casting? I'm unclear at the beginning of this movie. More importantly, is he one of those indie actors who's taking the paycheck to remain commercially viable while going off and doing his machinist part two? Or... Is he really committed to this role? True. That's the question that I had. And having now seen him in these Batman films and Terminator, I believe that no matter how crappily commercial the project, Terminator, <laughs> which I recommend. Which you recommended. Which I recommended. <laughs> but, I mean, it's, that's not a film that you commit yourself to, but he did. Yep. And here he does. Much like Nick Cage. Always the committed method actor. Oof. There's not a whole lot of behind the scenes on these films nolan prefers to let the films speak for themselves while i did sit through all the bonus features mostly their documentary style about the comics but one of the things that did come up several times was that when he wanted this role he'd gotten down to such a low weight for the machinist nobody could see him as batman and in the span of a couple of months he worked with a trainer gained a hundred pounds mostly of muscle and was far too big to be batman at that point and the customers started calling him shades of alicia fat man <laughs> that is how committed he was to becoming batman though is he put his body through that enormous stress and then had to lose the weight and lose some muscle to become more lean in the batman vision 
Right. And so when we see him here and he's scrappy and he's fighting, I don't relate. I don't connect. You know, you'd think I would. I was relatively the same age as him and trying to find your way in the world. That was certainly where I was when I saw this movie. It took me quite a long time, probably not until he boarded the plane and met up with Alfred again, that I really felt like I can follow this guy on the journey that he's going to go on. But I suppose that's part of the point. We don't know what path he's on for the first 40 minutes. What is he doing? He is recruited by Dukar. And of course, Jacob, I'm going to have a lot of questions here about the League of Shadows and Raza Gould. This is comic book origin stuff? It's based on the comics. Like I said, Dukar is actually a Parisian detective that helped train Bruce Wayne. He did deduct Batman's identity was because of his detective skills. But Ra's al Ghul, or I know some of our listeners are going crazy, so I'll just say Ra's al Ghul, which I think is how you're actually supposed to pronounce his name, but we're going to say Ra's because that's what they call him in the film. He is like a 700-year-old immortal. He was this genius scientist. Long story short, basically, he created the fountain of youth, and it turned him slightly crazy, but it lets him live forever. He created the League of Assassins. Here they call it the League of Shadows, because I don't think this Bruce Wayne would want to join something called the League of Assassins. Assassins, but he creates the League of Assassins, which basically ends up becoming this eco-terrorist group that wants to destroy the human population and start over because he's grown such affection for the Earth because that's the only thing he's seen over the 700 years. But he plays a big part in the Batman mythos. His daughter Talia ends up having a child with Bruce Wayne, uh, who is now Batman's new Robin in the comics, Damian Wayne, 10-year-old ninja kid that was trained to be a, an assassin from his youth. But Ra's al Ghul... Big part of the Batman mythos here. What I like, though, Nolan takes this 700-year-old immortal witch demon guy. He plays up the immortality thing. He shows up later, but it's not sorcery and magic. It's more deception, which is one of his key tricks that he talks about at the beginning of this film. Yeah, I appreciate that. I definitely appreciate Nolan's ability to find plausibility, really, in all his projects. I feel like even in maybe your least favorite Nolan movie, he is always straining to make sure that every plot detail. Every character has a purpose that you can buy into it, that you're willing to go along. He really kind of talks about that. Inception, really, in some ways, I felt like was his manifesto to explain his tack. And I really am digging the fact that they didn't go supernatural here. I don't know what a Raza Gould is. As someone that wasn't a Batman comic book reader, this didn't seem like the right choice to have for your first villain if you're rebooting a franchise. But I was intrigued with the way that Neeson was playing it. He's satanic, really. He's got this goatee and embodies evil. I don't know if we're ever supposed to think that he is a benevolent father figure. Certainly we recognize that he is apprenticing Bruce. But I always got the sense that what was going on here in the first half hour was negative and that it would be some kind of training that Bruce would take the best parts of and leave a lot behind. I'm coming from a different angle on this. Liam Neeson training someone in sword fighting and all of this. He's Qui-Gon Jinn, right? It's right out of Revenge of the Sith. He's got a beard. I just took this as yet another Liam Neeson mentor role. He didn't have the bad wig this time, though. No, he did not have the bad wig. But this felt all very familiar to me with the Neeson. I did not get satanic off of him if he's trying to play it in a way that you know he's actually duplicitous i don't get that from his performance i get him as the trainer as the jedi knight teaching him and in fact throughout all of this opening it felt 
so much like Nolan had a checklist. All right, he's got these blades on his glove. We got to explain where he gets them. Gets them from a ninja. Check. Okay, he uses smoke when he ropes away. Okay, here's where he gets the smoke bomb. Check. Well, there is a checklist. We're finally getting the answer to, and we'll get it even better later on, to where he gets all those wonderful toys. That's what I like about this is that why does he have spikes on his gauntlets? Oh, because it was a ninja thing to help block swords. Makes sense. Like, I don't think this is a super hardcore realistic Batman, but it's a plausible Batman. If there is a universe where Batman can exist, this is the most plausible version of that universe. I think plausibility is what I seek when I look at fantastical things like superhero movies. I need to be convinced. I probably need more work than you guys do when I enter that world. I love every detail and how they're telling me how this ridiculous Batman character could exist on our planet in this time. I love that. When he busts out those bat cuffs and saves him from sliding down the mountain with them, I thought that was really awesome. It To me, it didn't feel rote. I guess what you're saying is that by going down a list, it felt like there was no passion to revealing any of these surprises. But to me, I was delighted. See, yeah, I wasn't connecting to the characters. I was honestly reminded of Predator 2, Ugh. where it was more about the tech than the people. Is that what Predator 2 was about? <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was about 90 minutes too long, but whatever. You can hear our review in the archives, but I believe I said it was about the tech. Okay. And here I was feeling the same way. Like it's introducing these things. I didn't feel like I needed a checklist of where he got each individual component of his utility belt. Nolan did. And so this is what we're getting. And I feel it's just at the expense of relatable, empathetic characters. At this point, there's no villain in this movie, right? At this point, we don't know there's a villain. It's all about the hero, which is a strange twist for Batman. But that means you need to make me like the hero. And by not giving us anything new in this real origin story, by showing us the same things that, like you said, Stuart, that had been at least alluded to, if not outright shown in the past two films, the fall in the cave, the death of the parents... I'm not finding any way that I'm coming to like this character. See, Arnie, I'm, I'm surprised because I wasn't focusing that much on the tech. I'm, I noticed the spikes on the gauntlet and the smoke bombs. What I appreciated with this telling of the origin was the psychology. We get Ducard explaining, you have to use fear, you have to use trickery. This is why Batman chooses these things. It's not just because he happens to be a billionaire and he could buy smoke bombs, but this is how he was trained. This The reason he's going to dress as a bat is to bring fear about. Turn fear against those who prey on the fearful, is one of Ducar's lines. I also really like that they address Batman and the topic of will he kill. That's one of the things that really bugged me about the Burton, especially in Batman Returns, when he just sticks a bomb in a dude's pants and walks away <laughs> with a smirk on his face. That's the central crisis in this first act, is that he's done all this training, he's come to accept this league, and now he's got to murder someone. And then, boom, we go to this flashback about when he almost murdered Joe Chill, who killed his parents. And there's so much going on about the character of Bruce Wayne, why he would choose this path, why he would choose to be a vigilante and yet not kill, and what his form of the law is. He says when he was a thief, he learned that things weren't black and white. I think that's an important thing for a billionaire to learn, because if you just have a billionaire beating up like muggers, 
It's just a rich dude beating up the poor. I don't think there's a lot to like about that. So you have to create that depth that he sees that life isn't black and white. Whereas Ducard, yes, but life is black and white. There are criminals and you kill them. This is so Star Wars. I mean, they wrap up the whole Star Wars saga in about 40 minutes here. You know, do you take this brash course to bring about good and kill people? Or do you take this lesser known, this gray path where you want justice, but it's not by extreme means? You know, do you go to the light side or the the dark side, which the League of Shadows are. I mean, literally, the League of Shadows. They're dark. Yeah. Jacob, I want to be clear. It's not that I dislike this first 40 minutes. It's that because they arranged it non-chronologically, I don't know where my in is. I like it when I think about it in retrospect, when I process it, and I think about that journey. And as you say, as a rich man wants to shoot Joe Chill, but learns when he becomes a poor man that he is, can be like him, that people are malleable by the situations they find themselves, that circumstance often defines character. I think all of that stuff is really good. I just feel like by interweaving it with all of the ninja stuff, it, it was hard to get the lessons there. You know, you have Ducard always repeating like these cone poem kind of stances about what all of this means, but I'm not feeling it. There is a lot of talking and expository language here that actually it's kind of distracting. I kind of wish that I had been able to follow the journey without so much kung fu wisdom sewn in here. I'm a little bit different. In retrospect, I do find it nifty. And as little poems, I like the bits of wisdom as applied to Batman. If I were reading a Batman comic and these were word panels that accompanied Batman, you know, flying over Gotham in the first two pages of a story, I'd like it. I'm not sure I completely even agree on the whole malleability thing. As he himself said, I hung with them, but I never became one of them. He stole from himself. He stole from Wayne Enterprises. So I didn't get that his entire interpretation of the malleability of criminals was there. And yeah, I'm having a hard time finding an in. And again, all montage. I think that is more damning than the non-chronological style in which it's told is the fact that it doesn't slow down at all. Half hour in, we've not had a conversation. We've had voiceovers and training montages and orders barked. But what do I know about this guy? He's upset because he blames himself for his parents' death. That's what I know. And I care why? Because he's Batman. Okay, when does he become Batman? This is what my process is. I'm with you, Arnie. We're really on the same page. I think I'm liking it better, but I'm having the same problem. And I guess I'm having something that you guys aren't experiencing, which is maybe it was just my knowledge that I knew that Neeson had been cast as the bad guy. You know, I read movie stuff, so I had heard, oh yeah, Neeson's playing the bad guy. It was just presumed what was happening here was corruption. And that it was not surprising to me once Bruce is given the flower gas or whatever and the Neeson devil eyes come out and we see him really try to conquer his fear and then use that mastery to burn down the whole palace. I mean, what's your take on the fact that he ends up bringing down the League of Shadows? I don't think he takes down the League of Shadows, but is it somewhat hypocritical that he just said, no, I'm not going to kill this dude, and then he blows up a whole ninja dojo, and the fake Ra's al Ghul dies, and I'm sure some of those other ninjas may have died. I don't think there's consistency, but I guess I could write it off as, this is Batman year one, literally, this is him in training, becoming Batman. Why does he do it? Why does he decide that what he is learning and the lessons that are being taught here must be stopped and destroyed because 
Ducart comes straight out and says, Gotham's time has come. I, we're going to destroy it. And that's kind of his hometown. But not here. Yes, no, it's here. Oh, it's in these scenes? I guess I didn't get that whiff. He doesn't say he's going to destroy Gotham. Well, he says Gotham's time has come and that the League of Shadows destroys corrupt societies. So I, I think, you know, there's some logic yeah, you yeah. can put there. Oh, I think I really needed something a little bit more concrete here. It felt really out of left field. It's like you enlist in summer camp. You're like, okay, I'll learn the sailor's knot. I'll do this. I'll, you know, get this badge and that badge. And then you go to the Eagle Scout ceremony and then you're like, burn it all down. Screw this place. I want out. It was, it was a whiplash. I agree. I don't think that it's driven home enough that what he was doing is defending Gotham. What I took it as is just he wouldn't kill, which I understand is the Batman moral code. I think he reacts a little bit violently (laughs) to it, but I get that it's also he has to do this or they'll kill him for not finishing the ritual. Right. He was with every step of the way until they said, we have this corrupt guy in a cage. He needs to die. He is a murderer, and therefore you should murder him, and that gets him to go you know, 180 degrees in the other direction. Yeah, Bruce wants to stop crime. He wants to catch muggers. He wants them to face the justice system, go to jail. He doesn't want to kill him, though. We see him go through that whole scene with Rachel where she takes him down to Falcone after Bruce finds out that Falcone was responsible for Joe Chill's hit woman. And that kind of robbed him of his chance of murdering the guy and getting that vengeance. Right. Is Rachel the reason that he is not willing to go with this? Because, of course, Neeson wants him to do this. This everyone wants him to do this. They would have been conditioning his mind to be ready to make this murderous act. I can only think that because Katie Holmes slapped him and said, you're bad if you have these vigilante thoughts. Look, that's the one scene with Katie that I like in this film. It's the only (laughs) one that I think she adequately acts. in. So I don't want to take too much of that away from her. It's the one good thing I have to say. I'm just trying to understand here because it does feel like lessons are being taught. I'm trying to follow the character, but I don't close the circle here in this first 40 minutes. I don't entirely get why he was ready to kill Joe Chill and then he wasn't ready to kill another murderer. I think his journey is going from this selfish rich kid. We see when he's a kid, he steals the arrowhead from Rachel, who is his servant's daughter. And his first act of vengeance, of vigilantism, is purely selfish. It's to avenge this murder of his parents. And then with after that talk with Rachel, yes, and that run in with Falcone, he sees he needs to take a different approach. He needs to help the city. He needs to change people, not just murder them. I went with this because he had no personal grudge there. Trying to kill his parents' murderer, that's an act of vengeance. He was there when that happened. He wasn't able to do that. He went, he had his thing with Falcone, he threw the gun away. And I take it at the time he throws the gun into the river that he's not going to kill people. Mm -hmm. But so much of what I'm accepting in this movie is because he's Batman. (laughs) There's more things being checked off the list. Batman doesn't kill. Check. Okay. But I don't think you've gotten that. If you've watched all the Batman films up to this point, this is new stuff. No, no. We've seen Batman shove bombs down people's pants. This is a different Batman. In my defense, I did not go and watch the Tim Burton movies before this. In my mind, Batman didn't kill because he's a superhero and superheroes don't kill unless... They're on the 
the big screen. And I don't have that presumption. I guess that shows you what I knew about superheroes. But if you had asked me five minutes before I walked into the screening of this back in 2005, I would have been like, oh, yeah, he's going to kill all the bad guys. It would not have occurred to me that there was a moral code. But he finally does return to Gotham, and we do get to see his support structure. First of all, the butler Alfred Michael Go, no more now. Michael Caine. Yes. I like Michael Caine in most things where I see him. He's always kind of a pleasing, soothing British presence. Even in Jaws the Revenge. <laughs> yes. Last time we saw Michael, he was trying to pucker up with uh, the Brody Widow and fight a mechanical shark. He comes off a lot better here. It's nice to see his warmth applied to a situation that isn't patently ridiculous. And yeah, I love him in a grandfatherly way here. I really feel like it is the same role that Michael Goh played, but because we're getting to know this Batman now from this point forward and see him in the home life, it just feels like a warmer camaraderie. Maybe it's just that we're dealing with better actors here or actors that have more chemistry together. I think Michael Goh was one of the strongest actors throughout those 90s Batman films. And you know what? When I think of the comic book look for Alfred, I think Michael Goh. But Alfred actually has some military training, and that's going to come out throughout these Nolan films. And I think Michael Caine sells that better than Michael Goh. But Michael Goh is trying to talk about hunting down jewel thieves in Burma. I don't know if you have it in you, but Michael Caine, I buy it. I liked that Michael Caine was kind of an accomplice in all of this. First of all, he's comic relief. Something that first half hour desperately could have used a little more of. He's there with a more wry comment. But second of all, he's there helping Bruce, helping place the orders, helping say things like, so you're going to have a mask so that they don't kill your loved ones like me, right? When he comes into the picture, I warm up a little bit, especially the way that he now owns everything Wayne did. And he's like, yeah, you can borrow the car. Yes. Funny is a big part of his appeal. And he also just brings something out of Bruce. In that scene on the plane, when he gets out of Bhutan or wherever he is and flies back to Gotham, I'm seeing him talk to Alfred and the way that Bale is processing all that he's learned. He's basically repeating all the things that Liam had put in his head, but the way that he's processing it, his eyes and the looks and the way that they're kind of talking it out, I am completely convinced about the journey from this point. I don't need any more hooks. Alfred helps me understand why Bruce goes for it for the rest of the movie. My problems are over once he gets on the plane. I can't say they entirely go away, but I can say I like Alfred a hell of a lot better than I like Rachel Dawes. Grown up, we already mentioned Katie Holmes. And keep in mind, this was the same summer as War of the Worlds. Katie Holmes had a little bit of couch-jumping baggage going into this as she took on the role of a lifetime, acting like she loves Tom Cruise. <laughs> Look, she's the weakest part of this film for me. The first time I watched this, I had a physical reaction almost every time she's on the screen. I'm like, this, this sucks. Get her off. She's destroying this film. Watching it the second time, I guess I knew what I was in for, so she didn't bug me as much, but... Man, she really, really grated on me when I watched this the first time. Well, clearly she was cast for a demographic reason. Look at this cast. Most of them are old and British. They really have set up a cast that would not appeal to 20-somethings and teenagers. And this girl was on the OC, right? No. Dawson's, Dawson's Creek. Creek. I watched the show. I went and saw movies okay. because she was in them in the past, teaching Miss Tingle specifically. So... Oof. 
I think I'd seen her in Go. I knew who she was. Clearly, I didn't watch her show. This felt like a pandering move. Looking at this performance and trying to be gentle, I will say that I like her in the same way that I like Kirsten Dunst in Spider-Man. But the difference is that Kirsten Dunst was supposed to be a wishy-washy actress, and this is supposed to be a lawyer. I don't believe this girl who looks like she's 13 is a lawyer. I'm buying into that there's a Batman and that he has all a tank that he drives around. I'm buying into this. I'm not buying she's a lawyer. <laughs> You're right. And nothing that Nolan does in the plausibility realm can bridge that gap. That is something that, yeah, I'll just never buy her when she's cracking down these criminals. She just looks Miss Cash. She looks out of her element. And some of it is her persona. I mean, I don't have anything against her. I don't feel like... It's a bad actress. Maybe she is. I feel like it's a miscasting. I feel like there's no way that this person has the presence of a hardened lawyer that's going to take on the worst criminals of Gotham. I'm right there. Like I said, I did like her in the season I saw of Dawson's Creek. I did not stick with that show. I was excited going into the movie to see her in it. And yeah, I quickly realized that she was giving a very thin performance. I didn't believe her as a character, not just as a lawyer. I didn't believe she loved Bruce. I didn't believe that she wasn't thinking, what are they putting on the craft services table because my break's coming up. I think she had other things on her mind other than the script. I don't like her in this movie. I can't say that I'd ever like her in another movie. I have yet to see Jack and Jill. Maybe I'll get there. But I think she is a weak link. But thankfully, she is such a minor part. Vicki Vale has a much bigger role in Batman than Rachel does here. I almost think that's a mistake if Rachel had been cast better. I think it would have humanized Bruce, but I forget about Rachel in my second viewing. And when she comes back, I'm like, oh yeah, Rachel. We're all in agreement here. The weak link. And I don't think it's so much of a problem that it's destroying the scene she's in. I think that the scene she's in would be more convincing with a more brittle, more take tough, lawyer actress i also think it's just kind of an unfun part she has to be the one to not be in on the secret everyone else alfred and all the other characters we meet they eventually find out what bale's doing and she really doesn't know until the very very end she gets to be all judgmental and you're so vain and you don't help people and lecturing him and that's just never going to be a fun part i mean she essentially has to be a nag that's just the way it's written we also get a subplot and maybe you guys can explain to me why the hell this is here he returns to wayne enterprises the lost son of the former owner now rucker hauer is running it and he's going to have a public stock offering and Bruce is out and they're going to shuttle him off. He wants to be in research and they're like, good, you're out of the way. I don't understand why this subplot is here or what it does with either Bruce Wayne, the character or Batman Begins the movie. I can tell you what it does for me. It tells me that Nolan is thinking outside the superhero box. No superhero movie would ever have this as a consideration. It just wouldn't factor in. But this is real life stuff. This is stuff that shows me that Nolan is thinking in a large perspective. Normally we just think, oh, rich guy, he can do whatever. Here, he's looking at the economics of the situation. He's looking at the different ways that justice is fought. Economics is a part of this. You know, this city is in depression. The League of Shadows will eventually admit 
that that is how they're attacking the citizens. It's got to be a part of this as well. His money, his inheritance, all of that has got to play a role in here. I like that anytime they take on a character and make him complicated and make it more than his just brute strength, that it's about his economics, his ethics. It's just an expansive take on the character. It's a small bit, blink and you miss it, but I love it. And I love seeing Rutger. I feel like it's a nice Blade Runner homage. Again, I think it goes back to making this a plausible Batman world. Bruce Wayne has been presumed dead for seven years, so what happens when he does show up? Has he lost all his wealth? And I think the most important thing is this is how he meets Lucius Fox. This is where he really gets all those wonderful toys. So I think he wants to really build some depth to this world instead of just having this fetishistic rubber suits that Alfred makes in his spare time. That's fine, and you could have all of that without this Secret of My Success subplot. To me, it gives weight and credence to this world where normally most movies you're right would skip over this because it doesn't add anything to the base elements of a superhero movie why would you get into this why would you concern yourself with this kind of subplot the reason is we're thinking bigger than those other movies are and i gotta wonder did nolan have a sequel or a trilogy plan because there's so many elements here and i think this is one of them him having some control of wayne enterprises it's gonna make him be able to do some key things in the next film i I wonder how far out nolan was thinking you know one of the things bruce's dad says at the beginning of this film what happens when you fall you get back up well what's the third film that we're going to be reviewing dark knight rises i i wonder how far ahead nolan was thinking and he was setting things up in this first film that could pay off later he might have been but there was no planned trilogy there was no in the first film we do this in the second film we do this in the third film we do this he and goyer back with us David Goyer of Blade fame, of Ghost Rider fame, of Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. fame, here with his most respectable work, I dare say. He and Nolan hammered out a script right before he went off to work on Blade Trinity, and they were focused just on this. The fact that there are continued themes, well, Goyer comes back for the next two, and Nolan comes back for the next two. I think they know their work better than anybody else knows their work, but this was where they were focused. And they seem to be a great pairing here. You know, I've taken some digs at David Goyer because I really don't like the screenplays that he churns out for the other Marvel characters. But when he's being asked to demand why, I feel like David Goyer wrote this script and said, and then he's going to do this, and Nolan just looked at him and then went, why? You know, he kept making him make explanations and to tell us in a way that is believable and plausible why all this stupid thing would be. I mean, if left to his own devices, Batman Begins would probably play out like, yeah, Blade. And instead, because you have Nolan doing the reality check on his fanciful comic book ideas, you have this perfect melding of superhero stuff and real-world believability. I mean, this is the most realistic environment I've ever seen a superhero play inside of. I will say that, Stuart, in a previous show... I. I think it was one of the blades you said goyer had his name on the script the listeners came out in force and said no goyer wrote this and everybody knows goyer wrote this well in my research goyer and nolan worked together on this and then goyer went away and made blade trinity he was his directorial debut and nolan kept working on the script 
quite a bit. Nolan is a gifted writer and rewriter from what I've seen. And while Goyer's fingerprint may be here, I know I now have seen enough of Goyer's work to know he's not this good. He's really not this good. Well, that's what I'm saying. The way that their styles play off each other. What I'm saying is Nolan rewrote him. Yeah. Nolan fixed it. If it wasn't for Nolan, this could be right there with Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance. Nolan took some overall plot ideas, honed Goyer. The way you made it sound is that Nolan enabled Goyer to be better. Whereas I'm thinking of Goyer's doing the broad strokes and then Nolan's coming in and creating something truly polished. Yeah, I'm trying to be a little bit more diplomatic about what Goyer brings to the plate because I don't think much of it, but I recognize that you need a comic book expert, and I think he brings that. But yes, Nolan is what makes this great. And Stuart, you say Goyer's the comic book expert. That's what I enjoy, especially with this more than his Marvel stuff because I'm just more familiar with the Batman mythos. There's just lots of little things that had to be Goyer because I just could see Nolan maybe reading some basic Batman comics. But some of the names, Falcone, who was a mob boss in Batman Year One. There's a criminal just called Mr. Zaz. He's a villain in the Batman universe. There's just all these little hints that me as the Batman fan that I enjoy in that I'm sure were brought there by Goyer, which I appreciate. I also really appreciate what Nolan did in really flushing out this script and making it his and making it more plausible and not Blade Trinity. It's telling that they kept on together. It wasn't like Nolan, you know, rewrote him and said, I'll be doing this from now on. I mean, Goyer will be involved in the next two movies. It's a partnership. And I'm willing to recognize that both are essential to pulling off what they're doing here. And if I was happy to be re-familiarized with Alfred, I was even more delighted when Morgan Freeman comes into this picture as Lucius. I don't know. Is this a comic book character? He's a great invention. Oh, yeah. He is from the comics. Uh, came around in the 70s, I believe. He ran Wayne Enterprises. You know, Bruce Wayne's got to be out there fighting crime. He needs someone in place that he trusts to run it. And Lucius was the one that ran Wayne Enterprises. He's the CEO. And I don't even see him as a CEO. I see him as Q or Microchip. From Punisher. That's what I saw him as here. And I mean, it does make sense that Bruce Wayne can't be everything super tech genius and skilled fighter. And when would he have the time to create these inventions? I do like it as it adds plausibility. I like Morgan Freeman in everything. Doesn't matter how bad the movie, Morgan Freeman is good in it. Yeah, Morgan makes it better. I'll give you that. I don't know that I've loved him in everything or if I've even seen half of what he does. He's very prolific, but I was so delighted. This is a character that could seem redundant. He is fulfilling, in many ways, the same thing that Michael Caine is doing. And they're the same age and kind of giving the same kind of wisdom advice. They're both comedic roles and they're both played in the same dry droll way but i love both of them i wouldn't cut one for the other at all i feel like you need both i really start to understand that the identity that's being created here though i think one of the revolutionary ideas about this batman is that batman is a construct he isn't a person there is not one person that's going to be batman bruce wayne is not batman in and of itself that it is a team of people that collectively these do-gooders all 
create the environment that allows Batman to exist. And I think that's a great idea, and you need all of them. I love the ensemble approach to the creation of this superhero. You say Q. Well, Christopher Nolan is a huge James Bond fan. He wants to actually direct one of those, and we'll be getting to Bond later this summer. I can't wait for that. But you're right. This is the fun stuff. This feels like the part of the movie where James Bond gets all the gadgets, and we get to see all the cool toys that his Batman is going to get to play with. And yet, check... This is where he gets the suit. Check. This is where he gets the mask. Check. This is where he gets the car. But I love the inventiveness of like how they get the mask. They order half of it from one place in China, the half of it from one other factory. Then they get it. It's not made up to specs. They got to order 10,000 more. You're saying it's just a checklist, but I love the execution of that checklist. That's exactly it. A checklist would be, oh, sir, we have all of these things. You walk in the room, you see everyone. They're all cool and ready to go. And that's the end of it. That is a checklist. Here it is. Here's everything you're going to use. Here's the menu. Here it really is watching them figure it out, piece together with comedy, with turns you wouldn't expect. Exactly. Well, the cow came, but the graphite's wrong and it's smashed. So, yeah, we have to order 10,000 more. We have to buy in bulk in order for no one to raise suspicions. And, you know, Bruce gets in there with, at least we're getting a discount. I mean, I was laughing a lot during this stuff. This stuff is fun. I absolutely love this at this point. It's sad to me to hear that you're not getting into the movie at this point. I understand the first part. I don't understand why you wouldn't be having a good time now. Maybe because I'm not a Batman fan. I like Batman. I've liked some Batman movies a whole bunch. But at this point, I'm not going to geek out over the latest, greatest Batmobile. But there are things I'm liking here. You mentioned trading Alfred for Lucius and the two. What this movie, watching it right after the Spider-Man series has shown me, is how much that I like that Batman has a support structure here. He's not doing it all alone. In the first two Spider-Man films, Peter is 100% alone. He has to do everything himself. And it raised the questions, where'd he get the suit? Where's he find the time? I like that there are characters for Bruce to talk to and to vocalize his motivations and his thinking. When Alfred says, why bats? Because I'm frightened of bats. My enemies should share my fear. I like that it provides a mechanism for him to have dialogue, which a lot of films are lacking and we have to just get through other means, either voiceover or something. I'm enjoying that technique, but I'm still just not clicking with the character. I feel like it's just too niche for the Bat fans and for someone who likes superhero movies but doesn't get giddy over a Batarang, I'm just left a little cold. Well, Arnie, uh, first of all, I said at the beginning of this podcast, I was suspect of the tumbler. I'm like, dude, he's going to have a tank. That's lame. Like, there was so much I was suspect of, but Nolan's execution is what wins me over. Yeah, I, I agree. I don't know what your expectations would be if you had a particular way that you expected the character to look and dress and all of that. I don't care what Batman does. He can go to outer space. Whatever. We can have Man Bat. All these crazy things you guys have mentioned in passing. <laughs> I'll go with any of it if I can buy into the vision, and Nolan lets me do that. I believe every step of the way. I am not questioning any of this, and that's key for me, because so often I am the skeptic when it comes to superhero origin. Part of the problem for me is at this point, we're an hour or more into the movie, and I feel like I'm on a really long drive, and I don't know where I'm going. You, Stuart, when we were doing the Incredible Hulk TV movie, you said it's a pilot without a villain. Who's the villain at this point? It's all Bruce, which could work if you made me like Bruce. It's also 
mostly all still freaking montage. Have you not noticed that it, there have been some lingering scenes now when he gets back to Wayne Manor and when he gets back to Wayne Enterprises, but still so much of it is rapid cut. Here's a weapon. Here's me spray painting. Here's me driving. It feels like it's cut for action, but there's no action occurring. I feel like you're looking for a movie in which you can finally link up with the lead character and go on his heroic journey. I'm going to argue this is not a hero's quest. Yes, they pull a lot from Star Wars. Yes, they pull a lot from Campbell, and there are archetypes here. But at the end of the day, we are not watching a hero being built. We are watching a social construct. We are watching several people figure out how to manipulate fear to fight back at their enemy. And it has an expansive quality. It's what I love about this, is the fact that it feels more like the Godfather than it does Superman. I mean, it is about all of the players. It is about the epic proportions. And it is about, yes, all these little scenes and all of these different things that are going on are all linking together. I mean, to me, it's just a style that was very popular at the time. There were a lot of what I would call ensemble movies, movies like Traffic and Babel, you know, just where there's 40 people and they're all playing a part and that the star really is the ideas. I feel like that's what's happening with Batman Begins. If you don't like what Bale is doing, well, okay, there's plenty of other characters to hook you and keep you on this story. But I guess none of the characters are having any kind of arc that's hooking me. I'm watching characters. I'm enjoying performances. But it's so much all at arm's length. You say we're watching the creation of a construct. It still hasn't told me why I care. You know, Arnie, I'm kind of surprised that this is still your take after you've read Batman Year One. And I know you didn't like that one as much as Dark Knight Returns, but that was still very the first year of Batman. And it was very much told the montages. Here's a date. Here's Batman. And here's Selina Kyle. And here's a mob boss. And here's Jim Gordon. And it was just I never knew where that story was going until almost the very end. And I, I thought that was a great tale. And I'm getting that same vibe, even though this is very different than the story told in Batman Year One. I'm still getting that same vibe that I like so much. I guess the difference is in Batman Year One, I didn't like Batman at all in that, if you recall. What I liked in that was Commissioner Gordon. Well, not quite commissioner yet. Okay, Lieutenant Gordon, was he? Or was he Sergeant, Sergeant Gordon? Well, he's Sergeant in this movie. I can't remember what it was yeah. in that comic. It's been a few weeks. But Gordon was the story I really liked in Batman Year One. So is that going to be my hook into Batman Begins? It should. Gary freaking Oldman. He's awesome here. This was a turning point. I got to say, Gary Oldman at this point had become that old ham you didn't want in your movie. You know, he had done way too many slick Hollywood paycheck roles where he was just walking through overacting as a baddie. I cringed at the thought of him doing another performance like he did in The Professional or something like that. I, when I heard he was in this movie, I was literally worried that he was going to be one of the villains. I couldn't believe he wasn't one of the villains. I heard he was in this movie and I walked out of the theater going, where was Oldman? Who was he? I knew him from The Professional and Dracula. Ugh. <laughs> True Romance, Fifth Element. These are the films that I think of when I think of him. I think before this, maybe the last time I'd seen him was Hannibal. And I'd never really seen him give such an understated performance. I watched this entire movie not knowing he was Gordon. I found out the next day. 
I love that. And it's easy to see why you'd make that confusion. It is such an anti-Oldman performance. It's kind of how I think of him now with Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. But who he was in the 90s to play the character this way is radical. And yet I am still engaged. I love this Gordon. I never cared about the one from the Burton Schumacher years. But this guy, he hooks you. He certainly feels like the most realistic character out of all this. You know, everybody says Nolan's universe is real. And I agree with what Jacob said. It's a heightened reality at best. But this character feels to me like a cop who's just trying to get by and do the best he can. You know, the good cop archetype. And yeah, he does really do well in this role. Unfortunately, I don't feel like he's given a whole lot to do in this role. I disagree. I think that his camaraderie with Batman is one of the most satisfying arcs in this. You know, it starts really in the childhood years. He's the one to comfort little Bruce when the parents are shot. Hate that. We forget about him for a long time. You hate it, but I think you needed to get him in there. And it's why he is sought out later when Bruce comes back. He's looking for honest cops. He goes looking for one that he recognizes. Here he is. He's still an honest cop, even though his partner's trying to get him onto the griff. No, but, you know, it starts at gunpoint. You know, it starts with Batman breaking in and holding him at gunpoint and him shooting back. And by the end of it, he's driving the Batmobile. I really like the fact that they build the symbol together and that they're partners. Who needs to bring in Robin when you got a Gordon this good? That's the whole point of Batman Year One. It's Batman trying to get Gordon on his side, the one honest cop. So I like that they play that. There's the great line in here. Now we're two. And Stuart, you said that this is about a construct. It's not just about Batman, but almost an army of Batman. People to change Gotham, which, again, we'll actually see an army of Batman in the next film. But I think that line right there in the Gordon-Batman relationship really ties it together. That this isn't Batman. This isn't him brooding and trying to change things by himself. It's he's trying to inspire people one by one. And that's what he's doing. He wants to build an army to fight corruption. Yeah, this is bigger than a man. We're often told that this is a something bigger than a hero. It can't be about one person. It is a project larger in scope. And that Wayne is the focal point, but he is not all of it. And I like that the architecture of the city kind of supports that idea. You know, if you want to ever make a movie that I'm just going to fall in love with, you make a story that tells a history about a place. You know, a movie like Chinatown or even like a silly movie like The Warriors that was all about New York and using the subways. I love a movie that really explores the geography and how a city works. And even if you had no sound and heard none of the dialogue, you would understand all these relationships just by the way they're positioned. Gordon, as you say, he's caught in the middle. He lives in this apartment where there's stairs going up and down, but he doesn't have a view of the skyline. And Wayne Enterprises is at the center of the city, and the criminals, they're down in the lower depths. And I love the way that everything is just told so visually here. I feel like I understand the characters and go with them even when they're not talking, because of the way Nolan shoots this. Gotham is as much of a character in this film, and I think in Nolan's vision, just as much as any of the other characters. I mean, there's so much talk about Gotham and the soul and the heart of Gotham. Absolutely. I just love that. I mean, I love movies that are about a location, and I feel like maybe that's why I'm clicking with it more than you, Arnie, is that you're trying to understand a person. I'm trying to get into a place, and I was living in Chicago when I saw this. I've never seen the city shot better than in this movie. The way that they use the locations for Gotham, I always thought of Gotham as being a version of Manhattan, but knowing 
Chicago so well and seeing how they placed the camera and reinvented it and used CGI. It's a wonderful vision. I'm going to be sad because I know they didn't shoot the third movie there, but seeing this and The Dark Knight, I really feel like Chicago has never looked better in the movies or maybe even in real life. I agree completely. I go to Chicago very regularly and the streets on which the chases occur are streets that I drive on many times a year and recognize. And now when I drive on those streets, I always think of, well, the dark night, but yeah. <laughs> same streets. But I do like the art design. Schumacher's was okay, but I think this is up there with Burton's for a vision of Gotham City, and we get to see it looking better even in the daylight. I do like how they have made Wayne Enterprises part of the city and all of that. It takes a while to get to the point of it, but they are setting up a whole lot for this ending that when it comes, it, it, I almost feel like on the second viewing, I was able to appreciate a lot more of the setup knowing where it was going. Whereas the first time I'm like, who really gives a crap about the waterworks? Why are you explaining this to little young Bruce in these opening scenes? I don't care about that kind of minutia. I guess that's my problem, is this is a film that I feel it's too into minutia in a way that's, again, not clicking with me. It's treating it as an adult. This is the first superhero movie where I feel like it's not made for teenagers. It's definitely not made for children. I was actually kind of mortified when I saw it in the theater and there were four-year-olds around me. And later when the fear gas comes out, I wanted to cover their eyes. They were like whimpering. I'm like, I know, please leave. <laughs> there must be something more pleasant in another theater. I feel like this is the movie for us in this age. I mentioned this before that, you know, we grew up on 60s Batman and that was... Us as children, we totally related. And as teenagers, we got Burton. That was a very teenage sensibility. I love the fact that this is an adult Gotham with adult problems that aren't easily solved, that have multiple ramifications and a moral ambiguity. I think it's brilliant. I can enjoy films aimed at adults, but again, I don't think a film made for an adult needs to, by definition, not be entertaining. And I feel like adult films often have complex emotional relationships to which you can relate and have themes. Here, again, I'm not finding a relatable character. I'm not even finding the movie to be about characters. Maybe you're right. Maybe it's about place, and I just can't click with that. And one of the hugest problems I'm having by this point in the movie, he's suited up, he's running around, he's partnering with Gordon, but we have said so many times in over a year of capes and spandex movies that a good hero needs a good villain. Where the bleep is the villain? Falcone. You think Falcone's the villain? Because to me, Falcone's just another mobster thug, and I've seen enough Batman movies to know the mobsters don't really matter. Well, he isn't a supervillain, so he's not very impressive. He's a mobster straight out of The Godfather or The Sopranos. Not to discredit what Tom Wilkinson is doing. I love his performance. I love the fact that everyone gets little moments and that this is a movie of dozens of great little character actors. I love that. I love Falcone, even though we don't spend much time with him. But he is what is wrong with Gotham. Gotham is suffering from a depression. The mob has exploited that. They're bringing in drugs and keeping people down. And so we think from half the movie that Falcone is the real problem. We're going to get the supervillains in the second half. You know, what I really appreciate about this film, this feels like the first superhero one since those X-Men films where it's more than just the hero's journey or an action film. 
we, we talk so much about the moral dilemmas. Is it right to have a cure for, you know, the mutant gene and chess games? I feel this one even goes past that level. This isn't a movie about an action star fighting a villain. This is a movie about ideas, about fear. So here's this old kind of fear, the mobster, the, the guy that will bully you. There's the corrupt cops, that kind of fear that when you can't even trust the authorities, we'll get into the ninjas later on. That's what this film is about, is the ideas, and that's what's gripping me. It's not just an action film. There's more going on. And so Falcone, who you think, you know, the first half of the film, that here's this bad guy, or at least it's the only one that we're really seeing thus far, well, it's still playing into those themes of fear. Yes, I love the thematic cohesion of this film. I really do. The fact that Bruce's parents die because he's afraid. Watching it the second time and knowing where we'd go at the end with the fear gas and the scarecrow, the first hour all about the fear, Liam Neeson, you must overcome your fear. With Alfred, my enemies must share my fear. It's very obviously there. I can appreciate that. But I'm still not finding it enjoyable or entertaining. I think maybe part of the problem is Nolan is a cold director. He sometimes is even compared with Kubrick. I think they're a bit different, but I know what people mean when they say, oh, he's like Kubrick. He likes to have an aesthetic in which the warmth is kept at bay. They're cold movies. They feel emotionally distant, and it's an intellectual game. What I see here are chess pieces moving. I don't feel like I'm at a party. I think we had the same conversation, actually, during Inception. So <laughs> Yeah, it's just a personal touch. It's a style. It's something that I tend to gravitate to, but recognize that many people want less of in their entertainment. And during Inception, a film I've seen again multiple times since our review, I'm connecting with DiCaprio's family issues. I'm connecting with Juno in there. And here, I'm just not connecting with anyone. I do find renewed hope when Cillian Murphy walks on screen. Here's an actor who I love. Oh, really? Yeah. Why? He always engages me. I've seen him in only a handful of things. The Batman films. He came to my notice in 28 Days Later. Yeah. That's all yes. I know him from. We have it in Misception. We talked about him in Tron. He's great in Sunshine. I haven't seen oh, Sunshine. Yeah. Maybe I need to if you say he's great in it. But he's great. I'll say that. This guy always grabs my attention. He has this demeanor that's intense and a little creepy. I think he works better as a bad guy than as a hero in 28 Days Later. But when he comes in and he's the scarecrow, I'm like, all right. Killian Murphy, this is an actor who I was excited to see, and one who I again feel is kind of underused. He's a lackey. I like that, though. I like that every time you think you meet a bad guy, there's someone behind it. it I think that's true to life. I think that things are circumstantial, and that while you might be a big fish in this circumstance, there's always something bigger. You know, he's the one that breaks the news that there's something bigger than Falcone. Falcone has been a, such a tough guy until he sits down with Dr. Crane, and Crane's like, yeah, well, my boss is coming to town. And you can see in Falcone's face, he's like, oh, crap. You know, like all of a sudden he's got fear. We didn't know this guy could be intimidated, but there's always something larger looming in the distance. There's always something that can get to these villains. I agree. It would be more fun to watch Scarecrow bloom and become maybe the villain of the picture. It might be fun from a visceral standpoint, but it's in keeping with the theme that, yes, there is a bigger bad than Scarecrow. I'm so glad they didn't go with a full-on Scarecrow movie. And that's kind of what I was expecting, knowing that the Scarecrow was in it. And I'm like, okay, that's going to be the bad guy. I'm so glad they didn't. Uh, again, Scarecrow, dude that dresses up as a Scarecrow and shoots fear gas. 
I like what Nolan did. He takes these kind of silly comic book ideas, which I enjoy. I like those aspects of Batman and Robin, you know, the whole ice skating rink fight. But he makes them more plausible. So he really tones down the character. This is almost, you could say, Scarecrow year one, because he's not really this crazy Scarecrow. He's using this gas. He's turning people crazy. He hasn't gone full on crazy yet here, which I like. The mask terrifies me. I actually think that's one of those things that when I see him put it on, the second time I was a little more acclimated, it didn't have the same reaction, but it really is a freaky looking thing, and I feel like you'd never give a child a doll of it. You know, <laughs> up to this point, all the Batman things, I think about collectibles that children could own, and this one, I'm like, no, no, no. This is just for your Comic-Con dad. <laughs> I wasn't freaked out by it, but a psychologist putting on this giant burlap sack like that Maybe I'm the only one who knows Nightbreed so well I can quote it, but yes. it took me right back to David Cronenberg and Nightbreed. I hadn't thought about it, but I see it now. Yeah, okay. It'd be an interesting comparative. But yes, the idea of a creepy psychologist is good, and one that puts on a mask, even better. You know, they always want to make the mask villains like war machine makers or something in these movies, but I like the idea of someone that gets into your head much better. This is about intimidation and what better villain to have than a therapist and again killian murphy if you're gonna have a creepy creepy guy who's not going to be the one who can beat you up but he's gonna get at you psychologically i think he's perfectly cast for this strangely he was up for batman whoa and then when they got christian bale nolan just liked him so much we're like we're keeping you in some capacity yeah i think there's something about his eyes there's just something a little bit crazy in there yeah i agree they're very big and yeah they look innocent and yet there is something else going on there and maybe it's just the movies we've seen him in maybe he's done romantic comedies and we think he's the most charming bloke of all but i agree he doesn't <laughs> speak to me as a batman he speaks to me largely as someone in dire circumstances yeah 28 days later sunshine things that are intense he has an intensity and i think he's perfectly cast here i'm happy to see him i just do wish scarecrow was a bit scarier he here is a tool in both senses of that term he is a tool for Ra's al ghul to be what is he flushing the drugs to get it in the water supply i don't know how it's getting in the water supply but he's poisoning all the water there should be a processing plant i must admit it would be upsetting to think that anybody could just open up a pipe and pour something in and we're all going to drink it but we don't know much about this particular toxin this blue flower maybe it has properties that allow it to do it. I'll give it this. They've done so much in the plausibility realm that I'm not going to question this. And as a villain, Scarecrow, he's useful, but he just never elevates because by the time he would start being truly dangerous, he's completely overshadowed by the return of Dukar. Sure. And we all knew this was coming, right? I mean, I feel like this was a bad surprise. Uh, you don't catch Liam Neeson in a role like this and then get rid of him in the first 30 minutes. He was going to come back. I knew he was the villain. I always saw him in as a villainous character. And I knew that because Scarecrow was using this gas that was just like the burning flower that affected Bruce back in Bhutan, I knew that this had to be the arrangement. The boss that was coming had to be Neeson. It was just a given to me. I knew that the first time also. I don't think that's the surprise. He's not killed when the dojo is blown up. Bruce saves him. I don't think the flower is the surprise, the drug. I, that's obviously what this is. 
I think the surprise is that Ducard is actually Ra's al Ghul. I expect it to be Ken Wantanabe because knowing Ra's al Ghul, his deal is coming back from the dead. We saw him die. I didn't expect that to be a decoy. So for me, yes, I knew Neeson was coming back, but Nolan still managed to pull a surprise on me at least. Say, nope, this is actually Ra's al Ghul. The other one was decoy, which is great too because... Ducard, Neeson, Ra's al Ghul, whatever we're calling him, he talks all about deception and parlor tricks, and he pulled one himself. I like the layers there, the consistency that Nolan brings to this film. I think you're right. That is the surprise. I knew he was coming back. I didn't realize that he was the big guy all along. I didn't realize that Ken Watanabe was the proxy. That was not my expectation. And that when he comes back, when Bruce is introduced at his birthday party to Raza Gould, and it's just another Asian guy we don't even recognize, and there's that beat, it's very confusing. And then we see the crowd parts, and there's Neeson, and I'm like, ah, that is a nice moment. And this is where I'm like, all right, we're finally going to get it, right? He does have a bit of a fight. The house is burned down in that bit of symmetry. But this is where I feel like the movie should finally get my blood pumping. I'm not really connecting to the characters, but at least it's going to end with some rousing action. Because I got to say, I mentioned the set design, but this film is gorgeous. It's gorgeously shot. It's gorgeously cut. This movie is just a beauty to behold in so many ways. But I was waiting to see that beauty applied to some big action. We'd had some minor scenes. I was ready for the big thing here. And again, I was watching a lot of action, but I was never excited by it. It's funny you say you want action, action. Usually I'm there. I like a good action film. But right before this whole Ra's al Ghul burning down the house and the fight scene, I like the tension. I like the themes where Bruce has to assassinate the Wayne family name. He has to kill it. He has to truly embrace being Batman and decide Gotham is bigger than his name. So he's a total dick to everyone at his 30th birthday party, calls them names, kicks them all out. And right before that, we had Alfred saying, please, please don't do this to the Wayne name. And Bruce does it. That's how committed he is to fixing Gotham, to solving crime, to changing the city. So it's nice to get that fight. But I'm just drawn in by these scenes and and how consistent Nolan is with the themes of this film that Bruce has to make a decision. Is he going to be Bruce Wayne? Is he going to live the high life? You know, we see him earlier walking into a hotel and the girls go swimming and he just buys the hotel so they're allowed to go swimming. You know, is he really this playboy or is he this crime fighter? Can he have both? And through a lot of this film, he thinks he can. He could have Rachel and he could fight crime. And he's got to learn that if he's going to be committed to being Batman, to fixing Gotham, that he's going to have to give something up. He's going to have to make a sacrifice. And that's the Spider-Man thing, too, that we've talked about a few weeks ago. I mentioned in our Batman 89 podcast that I was thinking at that time, Michael Keaton was my favorite Batman. Here, I don't like what Bale does as Batman. I hate the voice. I hate, 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 hate the voice. But I love him when he's pretending to be Bruce Wayne. I love him jumping in the pool with the two supermodels. He is the best Bruce Wayne of them all. 
it feels in some ways like a replay of American Psycho. You know, like I, I think of that movie and he's executing people while singing Huey Lewis in the news. You know, that kind of manic persona, that larger than life stuff. It is an act. And I like the way that he plays it as an act. I've heard a lot of people grumble about his Batman and the voice and all of that. I don't know how Batman is supposed to talk. I think Batman is best when he doesn't talk. When you're wearing a suit like that and you're trying to scare people, it would be very distracting if you had a daytime speaking voice. I think they had to do something. And as long as they keep him quiet, I'm happy. I just don't want Batman to talk in general. I think you're right. When we hear the voice too long, it starts to grate. But it's not a problem in general. I'm not the action movie guy. So I'm missing none of this. All of this that you're talking that you wanted from other movies, set pieces, big moments and all of that. I've never wanted that from a superhero movie. I want exactly what I'm being given. I want to see the creation of a superhero plausibly and done with tension, with fear. I feel like my love of horror movies is being celebrated here. When he takes on Falcone back at the yard, I feel like that was straight up alien. You know, he drops down and snatches guys and pulls them up and all of that. We are watching a horror movie now with the strange twist of it being that we're on the monster side. All of this is really progressive and exciting and my kind of superhero stuff. I'm hearing you're not liking it, Arnie, but just know that for me, I've arrived. I've finally seen my ideal. And I don't want it to come off like I'm just some guy who's not entertained if there's not explosions. I just feel like this movie is failing to connect with me on many levels. It's not working as a character piece. What little comedy it has makes me chuckle, but it's few and far between because it's a very dour, bleak film. And if I'm not connecting with the characters, if I'm not invested in their emotional journeys, and if I'm not excited by the action, it leaves me with nothing. I'm able to appreciate the film technically, but... I still haven't been able to find my in to get into this film and not just keep it at arm's distance. So then I'll say this ending should satisfy you because when I saw the final stretch of this, I would call the climax of the film beginning with the reemergence of Liam and him burning down the house and that really kicking in to the final stuff. I thought it was incredibly intense, like grab the armrest. I can't believe what's happening. I can't believe what I'm seeing. This is really scary intense. Holy crap. What movie did you watch? I'd like to see that one because it sure <laughs> as hell wasn't Batman Begins. You know, Stuart, I think I get what you're saying. When the fear gas is actually released, we get these like mobs wandering around the Narrows in Gotham. And, you know, you get this big mob tearing up Batman and he's trying to get away. And I wanted to really like that. It's a zombie movie. It is, and I know this is PG-13, I just wanted to see the city, you know, they talk about it tearing itself apart, I wanted to see that more, just seeing people roam the streets and criminals, well they're bad guys anyway, they don't need fear gas to be scary, I like these moments where you see fire breathing horses and that perception from the fear gas is neat, I wish it was actually more intense, I didn't feel... This whole climax that the city's now going to tear itself apart because this fear gas has gone out all over. I wanted to see that and I didn't get that. I'm right there with you, Jacob. I'm not getting this intensity that they're trying to convey. I know that they're on this speeding train racing towards Wayne Enterprises where this silly microwave oven is going to evaporate all the water in the city. But... I do enjoy the scenes with the Scarecrow in here. I'm actually still loving Killian and taking the hostage and getting on the horse. 
I'm finding thrills in those scenes, but the Batman, Dukar, Ra's al Ghul, whatever the hell you want to call him at this point fight is just really not doing anything for me, nor Gordon learning how to drive a Batmobile. I do want to ask you guys, though, because having now seen this movie twice and I actually watched it a third time for this review, did Ra's al Ghul arrange for the murder of Bruce's parents? He says that with Gotham, they tried a new technique to destroy it, economics. They caused the depression, which would then cause people to commit crimes out of desperation to kill each other. And so, yes, in a way, he caused the death of Bruce Wayne's parents, which, you know, I complained a lot that the Joker was the murderer of his parents in Batman 89. This because there's so many strings being pulled here, I kind of like this idea. Who is the true murderer? Is it Joe Chill who committed the act? Is it the League of Shadows who created this economic crisis? Is it, from Dukar's point of view, Thomas Wayne who didn't act to save his own life and his wife's life? Like Batman meets Rochamon, which is a really cool idea. I like what Nolan's bringing by creating all these moral ambiguities, how complex everything is. It's this giant web that we're trying to sort out. But to be more specific, I got from it, from Raza Ghul's knowledge of how they died and everything, that it could be implied that Raza Ghul hired Falcone to send Joe Chill to kill those people. That it wasn't he created a circumstance in which they'd be mugged, but that their charity was hampering the League of Shadows' ability to break down the city. They said that Thomas Wayne was stopping their work. Yes. Did they hire Chill to go kill the Waynes so that their depression and their little economic warfare would be successful? No, because Dukar says that the Wayne's death actually helped the city limp along. It brought the city together for a while and try to fight crime for a while. They had the opposite effect of what they were trying to do. At the same time, I think Arnie is on to something. I think it reads well however you want to see it. For me, Raza Ghul really represents an idea. He's a construct as well. Batman is a construct. Raza Ghul is a construct. You're seeing ideologies fight each other here. And I like the fact that the movie can sort of leap into metaphor in these final moments. It's an exciting, intense climax because we're seeing scary images and I'm rooting for Batman and Gordon and all of that. But it also, I feel like the movie's really coming to life. They've for so long been setting up this realistic, plausible environment that mirrors our world. And here, watching a city as it struggles with fear, this was the first movie that I saw that I really felt like I was responding to what had happened with 9-11, that I really felt like, wow, they're really tapping into the feelings of the time. And I really felt that watching a city being overcome by fear was like, yeah, you know, we lived in an environment where every day it was like, well, what's the warning today? Is it red light? Is it orange light? How should we respond? Oh, we're supposed to put duct tape up on the windows and that's going to save us. We were living in this cultural of fear and that we had all these influences that were like Batman and that were like Raza Gould in our head. And I feel like watching this play out was very cathartic. I get that there are some attempted 9-11 symbols in here. I mean, if you want to take it down, isn't the League of Shadows training like the Taliban? And, you know, it it feels very mixed to me, though, because then what does that make Bruce? Is he the American Taliban who comes back and terrorizes? No, he's George Bush. He's the wayward son that came home and created a shadow organization to fight back. (laughs) Except W killed more people in his governorship than any other Texas governor and Bruce won't kill. So that breaks Uh, apart there, too. 
They're not direct correlations. I don't think that you can conclusively see that they are these historical figures, but they are capturing the moment. I do feel like they got the zeitgeist of what's going on. 2005, watching this, I felt like everything I've been seeing in the news and been living for the past years. Well, you know, it's coming out right after Spider-Man 2. I felt like that was also a response to 9-11. You know, the despair of how do we pick up? Our city is being attacked. We are afraid. Did we deserve this? Can we rebuild? Are we worth saving? All of these questions that I was hearing from all the disparate parts of our society were playing out here in a way that, for me, was very meaningful. I felt like this ending was exhilarating. I'm sad that you were not getting the power out of what I would call this masterful climax. I don't know if there's a movie that came out after 2002, Stuart, that you don't see a 9-11 corollary to. I didn't see it at all when I saw this in theaters. I did see it in War of the Worlds that same year, so I wasn't going to miss the obvious ones. I caught the little bit of Taliban the first time, but I don't know that if this movie was going out there to tie into 9-11 themes that it did so fully fleshed. And maybe that's Goyer's fault, because I've already said I don't think he's a very good writer. You know, I usually see subtext in films. I don't get a big 9-11 feel off of this. This is very metaphoric, and I like that metaphor. I said that I like all the ideas and the constructs. For me, this last final action scene, while I'm glad there's some action, I guess, I'm not as engaged with it as an action scene. I feel it, it kind of puts action over the metaphor with this final fight, and I like the ideas more than the fighting a lot of the times in this film. Well, let me just put it this way. Where I was emotionally at the time was I was very distraught. And seeing a world that was going to tear itself apart by fear and intimidation was exactly what I was living every day. And to me, whether intended or not, whether I'm seeing things that aren't there, mirages or projections, to me, watching a city that is going to explode, that literally, like a terrorist cell, this water is just benignly water that's going to turn into a gas that is instantly going to have us destroy each other. To see phantoms and horrors that aren't there and to kill each other is kind of how I was living this last decade. And I don't know what else to say other than, for me, it's a perfect metaphor. I will say at the end of this film, when they talk about Wayne Manor and we'll rebuild it the way it was, brick for brick, I felt that was very 9-11. Yeah. That was a comment on the towers that we need to rebuild. That was the only time I got a real strong 9-11 feel during this movie. Funny, because what I got was a post-9-11, you know, dirty bomb thing with this whole microwave emitter going to the heart of the city. It felt to me very much like our post-9-11. That's one of the things I got is Ra's al Ghul is a terrorist coming after us with his beard and from his foreign country somewhere out there. I, I saw some of that in there, but it didn't feel fully fleshed out or well-formed in my opinion. I'll say only this much. I feel like these ideas are taken to a heightened state in the next film. But I think that Nolan knew what he was doing here. I think he put them here. So the conclusion of this, Batman is going to save the day essentially by allowing Neeson to die. This is sort of a replay about what happened back in Bhutan that he made a point of rescuing Neeson, didn't let him fall off the cliff. Here, the journey has been that he is comfortable with the fact that Gordon shoots out the track, the train's going to go down, and although he doesn't have to kill, he doesn't have to save either. Is that in keeping with Batman's character? Is this something that you would say feels true to the comic book? There's been a few times where he's done something similar. There is a character called the KG Beast. 
I'm sure you could guess what decade <laughs> he was created. Can we review that comic for books and nachos? <laughs> we can if you if you can find it in the dollar bin somewhere. Mm. But I mean, there was a time where the only way he could defeat him was he cemented him into a wall and he just walked away. So does he die in there? Does he break out somehow? I mean, but that's always seemed kind of out of character for Batman. Usually, even if it's saving a criminal, he'll do that as long as he still can bring him to justice. Again, I'm okay with it in this film. I think this film earns it. And again, I could recognize there is comic book Batman and there is movie universe Batman out there. And so I could go with this. I feel Nolan earned this moment that, hey, I'm not killing you. I'm just walking away. It's not my job to save villains. It's my job to bring them to justice. I'm walking away. I think this was Nolan's concession to the have to kill the villain bit. Though we never see a body. We do never see a body. And I just don't think that this Batman that we've seen who doesn't seem too introspective is the type to lawyer himself. Well, the fine print of my I won't kill doesn't say it felt like a cheat to me. You don't think this Batman is introspective? This is clearly the most introspective. I felt like every Batman before just glowered, was sitting there and thinking about how angry he was. This Batman considers the circumstances. I disagree with that assessment. This is a Batman who's not going to sit around wondering about his own motivations. This is a Batman who acts not planned. I'm going to disagree there just because I know where the next film goes, and I think Nolan answer some of those questions my ex- best explanation is this is batman year one this is batman's first outing he's going to make mistakes and he's going to learn and in the next film we're going to see him learn from those mistakes yeah okay which to be fair though we're reviewing this as a standalone film but i i think when we watch it as a saga i think these questions get answered but no in this film it does not get answered I- i'm not even sure that raza gould is dead i mean it wouldn't surprise me we don't know too much about the new movie yet it would not totally shock me if neeson turns up at the end there's rumors thanks to the guys behind me in the theater spoiling everything as jacob said earlier i know he's immortal and he even makes a little joke about it in the movie is it really a joke i don't think an immortal character is in line with this nolan universe but it also wouldn't surprise me if he's not really dead But even at the end of this film, Scarecrow hasn't been captured. He's still out and free. Batman basically stopped everyone from going crazy. He didn't catch any bad guys, though. And that really is a disservice to Scarecrow, that he never gets a comeuppance of any sort. Shouldn't Gordon have taken out Scarecrow? I mean, if Gordon is doing the minor stuff, if he's the Robin of this movie, he's the underling or the learner, then shouldn't he have taken out the second in command on this plot? No, you guys are forgetting about Rachel and who can blame you, but no, (laughs) she's the one that gets that moment. There's a little kid that's kind of floated in here that represents the demographic least served by this movie, and she is there to protect him when the inmates get out and the gas is spilling and he's having the hallucinations and Scarecrow coming for him on a flaming horse. She's the one with her taser and puts him out. I think that was the right choice. Oh, I I didn't forget that moment. I just think he should have at some point been apprehended and Gordon would have been the one to do it. That's not him being brought to justice. That's him getting tasered. (laughs) I'm not against the idea of Scarecrow coming back. I mean, I don't feel like we need to follow the formula of the previous movies of you only get one movie and then we're done with you. It's fine. If Ra's al Ghul comes back, if Scarecrow comes back in the next film, I'm cool with them. I think that they're interesting characters. And if Batman's evolving, maybe they will too. Well, and we get that at the end of this film with the hint of the Joker, which this is straight out of Batman year one. 
this is how it ends. Things are escalating. Now we got this guy calling himself the Joker and in this film received the card. If I was on the fence throughout this film as the fanboy, that moment won me over. That got me excited. I honestly, again, hadn't seen the Burton film in quite some time when I saw this. I thought this was tying the thread so that when this movie ended, it could lead right into (laughs) the Burton film. So, Arnie, at this point, you're still believing this is going into the Burton film. Yep. (laughs) When I saw this in 05, now I see a lot of differences. I mean, I knew that Joe Chill was a replacement for Jack Napier. I knew that much. I remembered the big differences, but I still felt like it could have been the same universe. They didn't use any of the villains from the previous four films in case they wanted to keep that continuity. So... To me, the Joker card at the end, I wasn't waiting for the next movie in which there was a Joker. The way I took it was, if this clicked, the next movie would be a new Joker and it's a reboot. And if this movie didn't click, it's a prequel. I just appreciate it because of the tie-in with Batman Year One. I thought it was a great way to end the film. You know, we use semi-automatics, they use automatic. I love that idea of escalation at the end of this film, that this was Batman beginning. This wasn't the whole story. This was just the start. Yeah. And what better to escalate things than to give him his nemesis next time? You're right. The audience gasped. People were even more excited for the sequel than what they had just seen. And I couldn't wait to see how they were going to reinvent Joker. If they'd done such a great job with Batman, I knew it was going to be awesome. So, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Batman Begins? Jacob? I'm not going to give my recommend in the... Christian Bell Batman voice because I want to be able to podcast next week. <laughs> I said I bought this as a blind buy. I just bought the DVD, never having seen it, just trusting, hey, I'll like it. I don't own that DVD anymore. It's because I immediately replaced it when I upgraded to Blu-rays. I highly recommend Batman Begins. There's parts that I don't think they're the strongest. I don't think the third act is as strong as the first two, and that's kind of a problem. I think it's a problem with a lot of films, though. You know, when we get into the big action scene i had been given such this grounded maybe is the right word i'm not sure i I don't want to say this is super realistic but it is grounded in reality and i love the first act of bruce wayne being off in other countries and training and the time with the league of assassins i love the metaphor of this film and just how the themes are tied in this is the first film like i said since those x-men films where i feel that there's really deeper themes than just a hero's journey They want to say something more. This film wants to talk to us about fear and all the different aspects. Using fear, being scared ourselves and not letting it control us. And besides that third act, there's Katie Holmes. But two small weaknesses. Overall, a very strong film. You know, if we're making lists about our favorite superhero films, very high up on there. Definitely top 10, maybe top 5. Strong, strong recommend for Batman Begins. Stuart. How about number one? You know, I'm the comic book grouse. I think that many people that do like comic book movies have had issues with me over the course of Marvel that what's going to please him? He never likes these things. It's this and that and whatever. This pleases me. This is the best superhero movie we've reviewed for now playing. Easily. Hands down. By miles and miles. And that includes Iron Man, a movie I love but does not have the the heft and the weight. This is what I look for when I want to see a great movie. These elements, all the things that are in play here, with the exception of Katie Holmes, there's not one facet of this movie that I don't deeply admire. I think it is a tremendous work of art, and I think that it is undervalued. I think that, you know, the hype really has moved on to Dark Knight, and many people will tell you that that's the greatest one. We'll see next week. I haven't revisited that yet, but I dare say this movie 
to me in my memory is just as good as that one. I feel like this is the highest of recommends for Batman Begins. I don't know if since Spider-Man 2, I've had such a hard time relating to your guys' opinions about things. And Jacob, you said it's a movie about not being ruled by fear. I'm scared with what I'm about to say. I'm scared Uh-oh. of you two, <laughs> and I'm scared of our listeners. I feel like I've been sprayed with the fear gas for what I'm about to say, but I'm not going to let fear rule me because I don't recommend this. And it's not even a week not recommend. It's a not recommend because I think it is a technically great film. But this movie has a quote said again and again, it's not who you are underneath, it's what you do that defines you. I don't give a crap about this movie's moral center if it doesn't give me characters I can relate to or action that's exciting or a mystery that's intriguing. This entire movie, Stuart, you said cold, that is perfect. This movie is frigid and it's chill out. (laughs) (laughs) It could be worse. You're right. I just wish it had a soul and I feel like it has ideas, but I feel like Nolan was trying to go too big. I mean, you look at him, this was really his third major film, Memento, very small, Insomnia, bigger, but still not quite so grand. Here, this was his big studio, multi-multi-million dollar blockbuster, and I think he was so into the technical and so into the checking off of the ticks and the beats that the soul of this piece is missing. There's no humanity here for me to relate to. There's no character arc that I can really champion. Yeah, I see things happening. I see Bruce going from frightened child to dark knight protector of Gotham, but in no way does this affect me. Does no way am I intrigued. Three watchings, I'm bored by this movie. I'm admiring certain technical qualities, but I do not have a good experience watching this film. I bought the Blu-ray because preview for next week, in case people are thinking they're going to get to beat me up more next week, I love The Dark Knight. It's no secret I recommend next week's movie. I did already review it back in the early, early, shorter days of now playing. Oh, yeah. When we were just doing one-offs. Yep. And I will be recommending it, and I will explain in detail the things that movie does right that this movie screwed up. Because the only way to do is a comparison when I'm reviewing that movie to show what Nolan corrected to make one of the greatest superhero films of all time after making one of the most dour, soulless superhero films of all time. I agree with you. He is going to improve on the formula, but damn, he got that formula right the first time. And it's amazing that he can improve on it. I just disagree. I bought the Blu-ray based off of the halo effect of The Dark Knight. I bought Batman Begins last Christmas. A, I knew we were going to be reviewing it, and so I'd have it convenient. But B, I've seen The Dark Knight so many times, I'm like, I must have been mistaken about Batman Begins when I saw it in theaters. I must have been grumpy that night. I must just not have been in the mood. No, I will never watch this movie again. It's a not recommend. I got a question for you. I think what you've introduced is really intriguing. 
Okay, let's go back 2005. This is the Batman you saw. These are the way you're feeling. Would you have been okay? I mean, obviously, you don't want to change history and take away a movie that you're claiming you're going to love next week. But would you have been okay with the idea that Nolan walks away and that Tim Burton comes back or somebody else, Darren Aronofsky, gets his shot at Batman? Maybe they reboot it another way. Were you that strongly against this movie that you didn't want them to pursue this angle, this realistic Chicago set moody noir batman understand i'm not against this film in such a way where i hate it but i said it left me cold truthfully i walked out of this movie not giving a shit i don't care if they make a sequel i probably won't see it i don't care if they reboot it i probably won't see it i walked away just so apathetic about this film that i had no horse in that race of what they did next i could have cared less You know, Arnie, I'm actually not too surprised by your reaction. It's not an uncommon one to this film. There is a vocal minority that doesn't like the coldness of either of the Nolan Batman films. So it doesn't strike me as odd. You're the first person I've known to actually have that opinion. That's not just someone typing on a message board, but I understand where you're coming from. I'll give you that. And I understand the things you guys say that you liked. I've heard your points here, and I'm sure the listeners have as well. I hope they've heard mine as well. I just can't relate to them because the things you're citing as strengths, I don't see it. I see a new tone. I see this as a new era, an ushering in of superhero films, of dark superhero films that doesn't always work, as we talked about with The Amazing Spider-Man. I think the new tone it set for superheroes was revolutionary. It talks about escalation. Look at the escalation we've had from Superman, da 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 da, to Tim Burton's Batman that was so dark for 89, and now we look at it and go, pshaw, to X-Men in 2000, to this in 2005. There's escalation. I like the domino effect this movie caused. I like some of the movies it ushered in. I love this movie. If for no other reason than without it, we wouldn't have the movie we're talking about next week. Agreed. But watching it three times now, I just have no desire to look back. And that's what makes a decision on whether I recommend it or not. And it is so ill-defined unless you really are watching Dark Knight and going, where does he get those wonderful toys? I don't see a reason to watch this. It doesn't set up enough. So not recommend for Batman. You guys know how I'm going to recommend next week, but I think you should still turn in next week because I got a lot to say about that movie too. And some more positive things. Uh, That's great to hear. And Arnie, truly, I would appreciate hearing a difference of opinion. I think that we're going to have a really good conversation when we get to Dark Knight. Well, Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. Will any of the hosts not recommend the Dark Knight? No. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, come on. You're fired. You can't be on the show anymore if you don't. Was Heath Ledger's Oscar simply a sympathy vote? Find out next week. Same bat day, same bat website. We've received a letter from Batman this morning. Please inform the citizens of Gotham that Gotham City has earned the rest from crime. But if the forces of evil should rise again to cast a shadow on the heart of the city, call me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now-playing Batman Movie Retrospective Series. Well, that was very brief. Just like all the men in my life. Part of our DC Comics movie series. Fortune smiles. Another day of wine and roses. In your case, beer and pizza. (laughs) 
Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review another Batman movie, culminating in a weekend of release review of Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight Rises. My business, repeat customers. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, check out our archives where you can find reviews of other comic-based movies, such as Green Lantern, The Avengers, X-Men, Howard the Duck, and many more. If you gotta go, go with a smile. <laughs> you can also listen to our non-comic-based movie reviews, such as Star Trek, Terminator, Halloween, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Tron, and many others. Now that's impressive! You can set your bat phone to subscribe and get every new Now Playing Podcast. RSS subscription details are at nowplayingpodcast.com. What is it you really came here for? While at nowplayingpodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this show with other listeners. Don't talk like one of them. You're not. Even if you'd like to be. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. Come on, you gruesome son of a bitch. Come to me. (laughs) The link to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Oh, you made it. I'm so thrilled. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. So what are we waiting for? Let's consummate a fiendish union. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. It's not about what I want. It's about what's fair! You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can't get capes and cowls, yet you can buy panties, t-shirts, coffee mugs, calendars, mouse pads, and much more. Alfred, let's go shopping. Yes, sir. Now Playing's Batman Retrospective Series is edited by Brock, Alex, Nick, and Arnie. They scream and they cry. What is your day now? Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. I hate when people talk during the movie. Now Playing is not affiliated with Warner Brothers Pictures or DC Comics. Batman and all that DC's infinite Earths contain are the property and trademark of DC Comics, and no infringement is intended. The law doesn't apply to people like him or us. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media Incorporated. This is why Superman works alone. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved. Gotta go! So many people to kill, so little time. Insomnia, I liked it. I've got thoughts about it, though. If we ever do a full Nolan retrospective or something, I, I could Al talk Pacino. more about that. Yes, something like that. <laughs> Robin Williams, perhaps. I, I got a lot of thoughts about RV as well. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> but well, I'm Nolan- totally up for it, but... After that, maybe we'll do a retrospective. I do have a lot to say about all of his work. As the cards fell down, as the card, as the card, as the, what a, what's the expression? What do cards do? <laughs> uh, as it turns out. The cards we, fall where they may. Yes, I, don't know what I don't know. Whatever. The chips uh, fall where they may. Oh, is it chips? <laughs> We don't need to get into cards till I Dark Knight anyway. I don't know why I'm talking about cards. I know why. I guess I've been re- reading all these goddamn James Bond books. <laughs>
<laughs> I've been learning about Baccarat, Bridge, you name it. Card games. Uh, Superman returned the next year and then never came back again. Until <laughs> I guess we'll see him maybe in 2003. But 2003? We're going back or, 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 in time? Damn it. Damn it. <laughs> I can enjoy adult films. Or can't we all? <laughs> <laughs> I can enjoy films. So, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Batman Begins? Jacob. Sorry, that was more Pazuzu. <laughs> it was. I'm Jacob. not going to. 